from the Stratified Studios of Rodale Institute Radio at WLVT in Bethlehem, PA. It's time for another poorly composted episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks you bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Bulk loads of compost are more available than ever, but there's a disturbing new trend in how some bulk composts are composed. On today's show, we'll tell you what to look for when you're buying black gold. Plus, master seed supplier Renee Shepard joins us to discuss selecting seeds for flavor and her obsessive love of sweet peas. And of course, your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and rousingly resolute recriminations. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you saying no to compost that's got more bark than a chihuahua with a UPS driver at the door. Right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Lehigh Valley Health Network. Throughout life, you have many different partners. Shouldn't you have one for the most important aspect of your life, your health? Lehigh Valley Health Network, your health deserves a partner. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden. From the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at WLVT in Bethlehem, PA, I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the question of the week, what should you do if you are offered compost that has visible bark or wood chips in it? And in the middle of the show, we will talk to our old friend, Renee Shepard whose company, Shepherd's Seeds, provides seeds for the absolute best-tasting garden vegetables and most fragrant summer flowers. That's all coming up after some of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Jim, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hey, Mike. Glad to be on. I'm glad to have you on, Jim. Where are you, man? I'm calling from Germantown in Philadelphia. A, a beautiful old neighborhood of Philadelphia um, with generally very large houses and big lawns and sometimes backyards. It's a, a very shaded area. I think there's probably more trees in Germantown than any other place in Philly. Keeps it nice and cool in the summer. Ab- absolutely. We love it here. What can we do you for? I have an issue with some skip laurels that are getting unruly. Uh, I have a, a row of four of them. Mm-hmm. They cover about 20 feet from end to end, and they are uh, pretty much a divider between our property and the neighbors. Yeah. Uh, the problem is the neighbors have put up a fence, which is about six feet high, and the trees themselves are about 15 feet high or 12 feet high. So that means we are getting no green growth in the middle of these uh, laurels. And I'm wondering, oh. can I safely cut them back? No. So that they'll kind of fill in more. No. No. <laughs> no. No. Why did they have to do that? I don't know. I do really you don't. get along? Well, uh, we do. Uh, it's actually a, a house we rent, so we're not there all the time. But I, it's a quiet house. People oh, no, no, quiet. no, no, no. You own the house? Yes. Fence comes down now. Well, we don't own the fence. Well, did they ask you? They did not ask us. Yeah, they have no right to build anything on your property if they're renters. Oh, no, 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 no. The neighbors built the fence. The neighbors. Okay. Are they renters or who's renting? The people people next door own their house, and they built a fence on their property. Oh, okay. It it just so happens to, to interfere with our laurels. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a horticultural term for this. Uh, you're screwed, blued, and tattooed. 
is essentially what it comes down to. Um, this is a sin, man, because, you know, I was happy to hear your topic. Skip laurels are an amazingly underutilized screening plant. They're probably better at it than Arborvitae or Leyland Cypress, and certainly much taller than ornamental grasses. And they were really bred to be um, the perfect screening plant with uh, a lot more beauty than either of those evergreens. They're very attractive plants. Yeah, we've loved them. We've had them for uh, 12 years or more. And uh, over the last few years, they've gotten very tall. Mm -hmm. And then they're losing that sunlight early in the day. And so it's becoming like just all leggy limbs now in the middle of these branches, in the middle of these plants. But not at the top. No, no, no. They're still very light. In fact, they're unruly at the top. It looks a little bit like Sideshow Bob. (laughs) Yeah. um, If you had wanted to prune them to keep their size down to, let's say, 12 feet or something like that, you should have been doing that every year Uh, Uh, because now it's, it's dangerous to get up there, right? It's a tall ladder we'll be using, yeah. Okay. So you are going to go up and do this? It needs to be done. It, okay. it, it, it really is getting unruly, and it, it might cause other problems because it's just get too close to the house. Okay, those t- upper so branches. here's what's going to happen. You're going to go up to the tops, and you're not going to use any kind of a hedge cutter or anything stupid like that. You're going to be using, you know, pruners. And uh-huh. what you're going to do, and I would even have a yardstick up there with you. Um, Got to get up there soon. This is not a job for summer. Right. We need to get this done. So I want you to go up, and the first day I want you to go up, and I want you to cut about a foot off the top of each cherry laurel. Uh, Well, not cherry laurel, but the related skip laurel. Um, And then take a break. Uh, You can even leave the ladder in place. And then the next day, come out and take a look at it, and you may then, if it looks like it's going to be a good idea, go and prune another foot off, but prune for shape. You don't want a flat line. They're not going to look good that way. They need, right. they need to be a little irregular at the top to keep that look that people love about them. That's all you're allowed to do this year. And then you take the ladder down, um, and every spring you can go up and do the same thing again. Uh, about two weeks after your roses start to come alive, after all chance of frost is gone and the plants are growing uh, fiercely again, that's when you want to go up. And I always recommend when you're trying to reduce the size of a plant um, after not doing it for a long time, take a foot off, take that break, and look at it again. As we get to the third year, probably a foot will be all you need. Uh, eventually, you want to get this uh, to the crepe, uh, crepe myrtle theme, which is in the spring, you cut off as much growth as newly appeared the previous year. And you keep them at the nice right height, but you don't savage the tops because that's the growing part of the plant. That's the healthiest part of the plant. Now, um, any, any plant like this, if it doesn't get light on part of it, it is going to brown out. There, um, there's only one cure for that, and that would be for that fence to come down, for you guys to make some, some sort of agreement. If you can show them how the lack of sun is killing your plants, maybe you can, um, is, it, is it part of a long fence or, you know? Yeah, it basically runs uh, 
the property line between the two houses. And what uh, what's it made out of? What kind of fencing? Uh, wood. It's it's solid. There's no light getting through. Okay. Solid wood. Okay. So they don't want to look at you any more than you want to look at them. Probably not. Okay. If you know, obviously, I can't see the situation here. But if there's a way, the a six foot like a length of the fence could come down, and the cherry laurels, or the skip laurels, could take the place of the fence. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh huh. Right. You know. Right. Even so, so the chances are they'll never get enough light from above. It really have to get it from the sides as well as the. Top oh yeah, yeah. This happens. Again. This happens a lot with evergreens that get really tall. The top of the plant eventually blocks the sun from reaching down below. But it sounds like you simply need to get light back on them. When did the fence go up? It's been about a year. Okay. It's been about I, a year. There's a real good possibility with care they could green up again, but you're on the clock. Think about a break in the fence with maybe some angled portions of the fence meeting the edge of the cherry, uh, the skip laurels so that there's still that solid barrier there. See if you can work that out, and obviously you're going to have to offer to pay for the fence or to pay for that section of it, but it might be a good discussion. They may not have realized it, and they may not want to injure your plants because they're obviously that's a nice thing for them to look at is, is beautiful greenery. Yeah, I, I love them. Never heard of them until we had them, and we're, we're very thankful they're there. Very underutilized. you got a great tree there. All right. Thanks, Mike. All right. Good luck, sir. Steve, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you. Well, thank you, Steve. How you doing, man? Great. And where is Steve great? Port Penn, Delaware. Port Penn, Delaware. Where are we? I'm, I'm scanning my mental map of Delaware, which is the small wonder of a state. Where are you? Uh, it's, it's right below the canal, but above the bay. Oh, okay. All right. It's on the, uh, it's on the river. Okay. All right, what can we do with Steve on the river in Delaware? <laughs> uh, a couple of weeks ago, we got some uh, fruit baskets, and mm -hmm. uh, they they drew in fruit flies. I was watching a game show, and they they had a question about what would kill fruit flies, and they gave a, a solution of uh, dish detergent and vinegar. Okay. But they didn't they didn't give any uh, formula out. What show? Them. What show? Do you remember? Yeah, it, it was, uh, who wants to be a millionaire? You know, that's, that's absolutely, that's one correct way to do it. I can understand why they didn't go into detail, although shows would be eight hours long. But right. that's a good start. Um, there are many little pests like this that fly around the inside of the house. This year they seem to be more numerous than ever. I think because of all the heavy rains we've had this spring and last year, um, because a lot of times that fruit that comes into your house was fine, but then fruit flies came in with you from the outside. They will often just literally fly in as you're, as you're going back and forth inside the house. So you, you're never going to be free of them completely, but it's always good to act right away when you find them. And if, the, if it is the kind of fruit that can be refrigerated, the first thing you want to do is, um, is put that fruit in the refrigerator, get any fruit off the counter, take your compost crock outside if you got one. Don't give them anything to eat. They have a very short lifespan, and if they can't uh, 
If they can't find food, they're just going to die off in your house. I've been cleaning out my basement lately and organizing my camping supplies, and I also found one of these great, it's like a little umbrella that opens up and you put it over food outdoors to keep flies away. It's the size of, um, of a regular uh, you know, dinner dish, something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's got like spidery legs, and so it sits up a couple of inches. And it is really great at keeping insects off of your fruit or when you're eating outdoors, flies off of it. Now, some of these creatures are actually called vinegar flies because they are attracted to vinegar. In some cases, with some species, if you just put out little dishes of vinegar, and we're talking the size of, say, a jar lid. You get, you get a 16-ounce jar of mustard or relish or something like that. You clean off the lid. You fill that with vinegar. They may well, they may well, 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 watch out for the white whale. They may well drown themselves in that white vinegar. But uh, the millionaire show was absolutely correct. If you wanted to make it more effective, you would use a bigger, uh, a bigger holder. Oh, uh, you know, say a, a cup and saucer, um, saucer size thing, mm -hmm. and you would pour vinegar in that, and then you would take one drop of dishwashing solution and just run your finger around there um, just to mix it into solution. What that would do is that's kind of your sticker spreader. They're going to come for the vinegar, and the soap is going to coat them and kill them. So right. that would actually be a very good solution, and I'm, uh, I appreciate it because it wasn't one of the ones I was going to suggest. In my house, when I really want to get rid of these buggers, there's two different things I do. One, I'm forced to open a bottle of red wine. Now, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to open it up that early in the day, but, you know, we got to get these things out of the house. And if you fill up little dishes with red wine, they will not only be attracted to the wine, you know, which is essentially related to vinegar. They're the same substance at different times in their life cycle. Um, when they fly into the red wine, they get drunk and they drown. If you've got a lot of these things, they'll make like a bridge over top of the saucer. They'll just completely dominate it. Um, and you don't have to use a lot. And with the wine, you don't need the sticker spreader because they die from the alcohol. Um, the other thing that I use is I have old-fashioned fly paper. You know, the sticky rolls that you open up and you pull out the fly paper. Um, yes. That stuff goes back 100 years. It's still available. I think it's made in Poland. I think it's probably still the original fly paper factory that made it. And what I would do is, in your case, let's say you have one bad piece of fruit. I would put that in a, um, uh, in a low pot or something like that. Uh, some sort of dish where, the, let's say, the apple goes all the way to the bottom and there's one or two inches above it that the lid of the pot or the rim of the pot, whatever is. And then I'll pull out the fly paper and I'll lay it across the top of that container. Well, it is not only effective, it's entertaining. You can watch as they get stuck on it. After an hour, you won't be able to see the flypaper anymore. You'll only see 
these insects. And then if you come from a, a, the kind of neighborhood where I grew up, you got these dead insects on a stick to taunt for a few minutes before you wrap it in newspaper and throw it away. You came to the wrong kitchen, didn't you? Are you happy now, huh? Well, now we're gonna wrap you up in newspaper. You can read the comics on your way to the other side. So um, it is always important to taunt your pests, whether they be weeds or insects. Uh, but you can try the vinegar with just one drop of dish soap in it. You can try the little bits of red wine. Unfortunately, I found the cheaper the red wine, uh, sometimes the, uh, the less they're interested in it. So it's, we're not talking about a two buck chuck here. You gotta open up a $10 bottle um, and, yeah. no, and no yellowtail. No one should ever drink yellowtail, even to kill insects. It's just <laughs> evil. All right, Steve? Okay, this sounds good. All right, man, good luck to you, sir. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will appear in Philadelphia on Tuesday, July 16th to host an evening of horticultural quizzo at the PHS Pop-Up Garden on South Street. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet because we'll be right back with sassy seeds, contaminated compost, and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at WLVT in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural, organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Rodale Institute. Since 1947, the Rodale Institute has been growing the organic movement through research, farmer training, and consumer education. Learn more about local events, workshops, and tours at rodaleinstitute.org. The Rodale Institute, because the future is organic. <laughs> Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from the Rodale Institute Studios at WLVT in Bethlehem, PA. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up in the question of the week, what should you do if you're offered bulk compost that contains visible bits of wood? We're also gonna take more of your fabulous phone calls, but now it is time to bring on our special guest, Master Seedswoman, Renee Shepard a purveyor of fine garden seeds that really experienced gardeners treasure. It's been in the business for quite a while. Uh, it started out under the name Shepherd's Seeds and now are available under the name Renee's Garden. That's what's on the packets. That's the website address and everything like that. Uh, but anybody who's been in the business for any length of time knows and highly respects Renee Shepard. So, Renee, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thanks very much, Mike. It's really a pleasure to be on. I want to go back in, in a little bit of history because, you know, most of the people we have on the show are, you know, they're pruning experts or fruit experts or tomato crack pots or something like that. 
Um, and I've always tried to explain to people, I'm coming at this from the experience of a backyard gardener, um, whereby your experience is much more professional. So what was the seed business like? Oh, well, that's going back deep into the mists of time, but yeah. um, it was a long time ago. Shepherds was started in 1980, believe it or not, 1987. In terms of gardeners' interests, there's a few things that have changed, but gardeners are gardeners, and I think people still like to grow a lot of the same things, except more of them from more different places. And people like to cook a lot more. Yes, and what was this, what would you have said your specialty was when you were just starting out? Well, when I started out, I got started with the help of um, a person, a man, Case Boonman, who was a very good friend then and is still a very good friend now, and he was in the seed business and <clears throat> from Holland. What would you say your specialty was when you first uh, started with shepherd's seeds? I started out by specializing in really good-tasting vegetables, which is why I started the business. Well, that's still what you do now. That's right. It hasn't changed really that much. And uh, what was the what was your best seller? Well, I started the business because a very good friend of mine who had come here to sell vegetables to some of the farmers nearby me told me that he had a lot of varieties of common garden vegetables that were chosen for flavor and that I might want to try some of them. And I did. So I started out with French lettuce and Dutch carrots and a lot of specialty things from Europe where people used to and still do largely, but there really weren't many farmer's markets here. Wasn't the interest in fresh food, and of course Europeans had been eating that way a long time. So I started out with vegetables that are ordinary varieties, but especially good-tasting varieties. Absolutely, and you know, um, that was not a big part of the business. That was not a big part of the selling points when you went through a seed catalog, a lot of times people would be obsessed with production or having a disease-resistant variety or, or some other aspect. Oddly enough, flavor was not touted um, as much back then as, as it is now where everything is formed to table. That's absolutely the case. And a lot of varieties available in common home garden catalogs were the same varieties they had been for a very long time and not necessarily the best one. I think there's been a huge improvement. Especially back, uh, back when um, Renee's Garden got started, you really focused on flavor and cooking tips and everything like that on the seed packet. I, I loved it when your seed packets were little booklets that you kept turning pages. You know. Well, you know, we've always concentrated on what we like and what works best for the most gardeners because I write all the packets for our company based on our own growing experience. We don't sell anything that we haven't very carefully chosen based on trials both here in Northern California and also in Vermont, where we also have a trial garden. So when people ask us questions about how to grow things, we really can answer them in all honesty because we've grown it ourselves and not just what. And what part of California are you in? Um, I'm south of San Francisco, uh, about an hour and a half near the uh, coastal town, but up in the mountains. I'm near oh. Santa Cruz, California, and we have very cool nights. It's in oh. the 50s all summer, so it mimics a cool season. Yeah, really. All three of your places are kind of cool. I think literally and figuratively. I think it's great here, yes. Then um, we do a lot of trials um, at the college garden at Middlebury College. Oh, okay, good. And um, where your current location in or near Santa Cruz, um, how, how big is, are the trial gardens? How many acres or how many beds? Or 
Well, this is a family business, and it's, so it's not uh, acres, but it is a um, about a third of an acre. Basically, we grow like home gardeners, so it is a very what used to be a horse pasture made into uh, organic raised beds that are about 60 feet long and about three and a half feet wide, and we make our own compost and garden have gardened by organic techniques for a very long time, which has gotten easier and easier to do as there's more and more uh, supplies and aids for organic gardeners. We are in a very dry area, so we drip irrigate everything and have become very good at water conservation lately. Isn't it amazing to have been in the business as long as you and I have and see ridicule turn to acceptance when it comes to organic methods? It's a huge pleasure and an exciting time because there's so many more big organic growers. The fallout in terms of products and devices and ways of gardening has been really helpful for small gardeners. There's so many more organic pest controls and good fertilizers available and techniques. This last year, we've really started to use these insect nettings that are kind of calibrated for what insects you need to exclude, and they're a huge help, and you don't have to use any chemicals, organic or otherwise. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, where I am in, uh, in the farming community here in southeastern PA, many farmers are abandoning the term organic for, quote, no spray. That's good to know. Although certified organic, at least in my part of the world, still has a, a lot of meaning and um, is, is something that um, is used a lot in our local farmer's markets. Now, I, you, have, you have ruined my life. You have changed my life. You have changed everything I thought I knew about tomatoes, of which I've written three separate books, uh, with your Tasmanian chocolate. OMG. I have talked about this on the show several times, and I apologize. When I did it the first time, and I think you heard that podcast, I called it Tasmanian Red or something like that. I've since corrected myself. I never thought I would say this at my advanced age, but this is my new favorite tomato. Where did you find this? Well, I am delighted to hear that. Tasmanian chocolate is actually a variety that was bred by crossing tomatoes, different older varieties by a group called the Dwarf Tomato Project, which is a bunch of citizen breeders who are breeding tomatoes um, for containers and small spaces. It doesn't grow that tall, and it's a cross between several varieties, one a chocolate tomato and one a red, to get that really luscious flavor in a kind of semi-determinate form. So it's, it's really a good one. I really specialize in container varieties or varieties that do well in small spaces. That's, uh, that's the future. Um, even though I've rebuilt completely my garden beds and they're much more accessible now, they're raised up higher, they're all cleaned up, I find more and more that I'm surrounding myself with containers just just for the ease of growing. Well, you know, it's a real passion. Um, again, I get a lot of varieties from Europe, so I have like a container zucchini, cucumbers, tomatoes, even a container kale that just grows about two feet tall. But I'm looking for varieties like Tasmanian that have just excellent quality but are more compact. They aren't necessarily, the fruit is not necessarily smaller. It isn't small. That's the crazy thing. First of all, this is the darkest green I've ever seen of a tomato plant. The leaves and the stem. 
it, it's almost like a whole shade darker than what I'm used to. So as you say on the seed packet, um, it really is a well-behaved plant. I mean, they get four or five feet tall. They're the most upright tomato I think I've ever grown. You know, there's a lot of, quote, bush varieties and container varieties, but all tomatoes are essentially vines. When I grew this for the first time last year, I was amazed that uh, they really, some of them didn't need any support whatsoever, which is nothing I would ever recommend to people, but they had the habit of a pepper plant. They were just straight upright. One of the things that continues to blow me away as, as I started my seeds this year is the color too, the color of the plant. It is the darkest shade of green that I think I've ever seen again on a tomato plant. And would you say that the leaves themselves are kind of um, a semi-potato leaf? Because um, they're not a full potato leaf like brandywine, but they're not totally serrated either. Well, I think that's a very good description. Yes, it is a very unique looking plant. And for us, I like it because it does very well in a lot of climates. You're, you're in a really good tomato growing area. Yes. But this one does very well even where conditions are not ideal for short seasons, for cool um, areas where the nights are cold like here or very dry. It seems to have a good universal ability to adapt to local conditions. And the fruits are not small. I mean, you're, you know, a four or five foot high plant I got fruits last year that were uh, 12, 13, 14 ounces, easy. Now you say this was bred by a, a kind of a citizen science group who's playing around with tomatoes to make better container varieties? Yes, it's not formal breeding, but they do a lot of crosses of older heirloom varieties. And what what do you call them, the seven dwarfs or something? Uh, no, no, <clears throat> the dwarf tomato project. Yeah. Do they work in a coal mine in the off season? And, you know, you know, when we talk about edible landscaping, you know, we're talking about the beautiful uh, different lettuces, the reds, the purples, the deer tongues, talking about those beautiful neon eggplants, things that you would grow just because of their beauty. And you'd never think a tomato would fit in there. Well, that's true. I'm I'm really looking for things with lots of color these days because not only are they beautiful in the garden, but of course, the more color, the more nutrients. So That's right. Right now, next year, we'll be introducing a really, really nice purple cauliflower. So I think things that um, serve smaller families and can be grown in containers are, are really very getting really important now. Now, before I let you go, I have to acknowledge that there is one plant that you have been identified with, I think, your whole professional life. Tell us how much you love sweet peas. Oh, I love sweet peas a lot because there's no other flower that has their fragrance, which is like a cross between orange blossoms and jasmine, wonderfully soft, but never replicated and never too strong or too overpowering. It's just a very special fragrance, and you can only get it by growing sweet peas. No one's ever made a sweet pea perfume. And there's so many varieties, and they have so many stories behind them, and they're wonderful, if not long-lasting, probably the most gorgeous and perfumed of cut flowers. And um, how many varieties do you personally offer? 26. <laughs> you knew that right away, didn't you? You didn't have to go look. 
we're going to have a new one that I just started harvesting now called Fire and Ice. That's a, a real rich red and then a bright coral and then cream. So it looks like kind of burning embers. It's really pretty. They're, they're really wonderful, and it's important for home gardeners to grow them to keep the varieties around because, generally speaking, more and more all you find is mixes, and yet the single colors and simple combinations are really wonderful. So I work hard to keep them available. People don't understand that's where the word heirloom comes from, is home gardeners preserving a variety after it fell out of favor in commerce. Well, that certainly has been the traditional definition of heirloom, but nowadays, uh, certainly on the vegetable side, there's a lot of good small companies producing heirloom seeds. Mm-hmm. So when I, um, so there's a much wider availability. I think heirlooms are important, but just because something's old doesn't necessarily mean it's better. So I have a pretty open mind about what I want to grow. Hope you're not talking about me, Renee. I'm better as I get older. <laughs> Who is this again? No. Uh, So what's the best climate for for sweet peas? Well, the important thing to know about sweet peas in in climates like yours where you get hot, humid summers is they really, really like to be started early. They can take light frost, and they are not summer bloomers. They They bloom in the spring. So you have to start them super early and then put them out um, as early as possible, and they can take a little frost because they need to bloom for you in spring before it gets really hot and humid. Sometimes, like up in New England, uh, you plant them in April and May, and they actually don't bloom till late summer, early fall. So it kind of changes across the country, but always getting them a really good early start is the critical thing. Yeah, and one thing we I always like to say is it, it's the worst name in the plant world. Um, because uh, sweet peas are the reverse of edible. They're toxic, but the plant has a resemblance to edible peas. You aren't going to kill yourself if you eat a ornamental sweet pea blossom, but it'll taste terrible and you probably never try it again. So mm-hmm. it's, one of, it's not like a foxglove that really is toxic. It would give you an upset stomach, but yes, they do have an unfortunate name, but they can't help being peas. And all the instructions people would need are at your website, right, which I'm sure has a huge sweet pea section. We do. We have lots of articles on growing them, but all the packets have very carefully written, thorough instructions. And again, if you love sweet peas, you're going to love Renee's website. So that is Renee's, R-E-N-E-E-S, garden, spelled the regular way, um, org or com. Oh, it's .com, Renee'sGarden.com. Okay. Really, Renee, you are truly one of the real pioneers of what has come out of those early days with peace seeds and seeds of change and Johnny's and, you know, when the Rodales were still doing organic gardening. It's, uh, it's, been, it's been a wonderful ride. Thanks very much, Mike. I'm a longtime fan, and I listen to your podcast all the time. Oh, thank you so much, Renee. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will appear at the beautiful Chautauqua Institute in upstate New York to give a talk about pollinators during the Institute's Comedy Week. I wonder where I fit in. That'll be on Monday, July 29th. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet because we'll be right back with contaminated compost and more of your contaminated phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at WLVT in Bethlehem, PA.
Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden. From the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at WLVT in Bethlehem, PA, I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and we are in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we'll get to the question of the week. What should you do if you are offered bulk compost that has visible bits of wood in it? What would you do? We'll let you know after a couple more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Anthony. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden. I'm Mike. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm a long-time listener, and this is my first-time call. Well, thank you for uh, being on, Anthony. Where are you, man? I'm in Center City, Philadelphia, in the William Penn House. Okay. Uh, Rittenhouse Square. Ooh, uh, a nice neighborhood. What a Rittenhouse Square. What a beautiful park to lay out on the grass on a spring or summer day. When I worked at um, WMMR... Um, you may remember, if you're old enough, that our studios were up on the third floor of a building facing the square, and we had these great old full-size uh, windows that you could open up to the actual square itself. And I remember being there the night Michael Dearson came in and had this big uh, shoulder bag full of records, and he flung it where it would have normally stopped against the window and went sailing into the square. <laughs> All right, what can we do? Uh, the Rittenhouse Square, one of the four original squares of Philadelphia, designed by Ben Franklin. Beautiful sculpture, beautiful lawns, a great gathering place. What a, what a nice thing to have outside your door. Okay, the, the reason I'm calling is because uh, on Friday, the Friday before last, I saw a grand, groundskeeper, and he was spraying a liquid. And I asked him what he had there, and he said it was Roundup. And, what, and uh, what, was he spraying it in sections of the lawn? Was he spraying it on cracks between the concrete or the brick or whatever portion of the walkway was there? He was spraying it on the cobblestones in the center of the square where a lot of people and little kids congregate with their, with, you know, toddlers and people walk their dogs. Yeah. Yeah, it's... And, and he was basically saturating it pretty good with uh, was a... Like two, two or three gallon backpack uh, unit he had. Yeah. And and uh, I was surprised because well I didn't know that much about you know, whether it was carcinogen or it was harmful to the environment. So uh, I made several phone calls and no one returned my calls. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you all the phone calls I made. Right. Okay. So here's the deal. Roundup and the other popular herbicide, 2,4-D, have been linked to specific cancers. The one that Roundup is linked to isn't coming directly to mind. It's cousin, 2,4-D. Um, that's distinctly linked to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in male humans and male dogs. And, of course, mm -hmm. dogs, uh, nobody's... Well, actually, I have seen people walk their cats in Rittenhouse Square. Uh, but a lot more dogs, and dogs' paws, of course, are very porous. So when they walk on uh, any kind of an herbicide, especially if it's been used on the grass, um, they pick it up. And oddly enough, one of the biggest dangers is people walking across that stuff over and over again, 
Because as you know, if somebody's walking through that area of Philly, they probably pass through it three, four, eight times a day. Well, then they go home, and when they walk on the carpet in their house, that's like a brush that takes the herbicide off and deposits it in the carpet. So over a period of time, that carpet becomes a tremendous reservoir of the agricultural chemicals that you've walked across. Um, it can uh, round up, is also known to be toxic to amphibians like frogs and toads. And believe it or not, there are toads in Rittenhouse Square. If you're ever there late at night, you may see them hopping around, eating their bugs. Of course, it's a danger to birds, and it's totally unnecessary when you've got weeds in a, a situation like growing up through cobblestones. It would be much safer to have uh, a flame weeder there, which would leave no residues whatsoever, or to use one of the more modern herbicides based on iron, like Iron X. Um, there's a whole bunch of them at retail now, and they all have uh, some form of iron listed as their active ingredient. Now, you're in a unique situation. Uh, Rittenhouse Square is, I believe, part of the Fairmount Park system. And the, mm -hmm. the Fairmount Park system has commissioners who are civilians. They're kind of halfway between um, legislators and um, just activists who are being philanthropic with their time. So I would go to them and ask them what their herbicide policies are, especially in this tightly packed urban park. Are there any warnings that Roundup is being sprayed? Are there any warnings afterwards that this area was sprayed? Um, I believe. I saw no warnings. Well, well, I asked the guy, and he said he really didn't want to spray it, but uh, he had to spray it for his job. Right. Well, uh, you know, that may be there's just one guy in the middle there who's adamant about using these chemicals. And if he can be, like, talked to from both sides, the workers, they're being exposed. They're at the greatest risk, by the way, of developing uh, cancers and other health problems. Um, as you may have seen in the paper lately, uh, Monsanto, the parent company of Roundup, has had to pay millions and millions of dollars for ground, uh, to groundskeepers and other uh, professionals who use this product a lot and develop certain cancers. So um, I would, you know, if I can get through to the commission, the Fairmount Park Commission, you know, there's some responsibility there if they've heard about these settlements and they continue to use the product. They may well be liable, and that's the last thing the city needs is more money going out for nothing good. I believe there is also a group called Friends of Rittenhouse Square, and you may be yes. able, and they didn't return your calls. No, I didn't get a hold of them, but I, I, I didn't remember. I didn't, you know, remember. Right. I would email the Friends of Rittenhouse Square first um, and copy the Fairmount Park Commission on it. Um, all it takes is somebody like you to bring a subject like this into the light, and there's a real good chance they'll stop. I see. All right, Anth? Okay. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you for paying attention, and thank you for protecting this, this beautiful space in the city. All right, as promised, it's time for the question of the week. How much compost can wood chips wreck if wood chips could wreck compost? Bethany in Montoursville, PA, which is just outside of Williamsport, 
which itself is home of both the family newspaper known as Grit and the Little League World Series, writes, I have several square foot gardening boxes that are seeing slow growth and yellowing of the leaves, especially on my snap peas, but essentially on everything. I used Mel's Mix, but where he recommends five different types of compost, I went with a single yard waste compost with pine bark that my local garden center recommended. I'm fearing the worst, that the pine bark is tying up all of the available nitrogen, and then I'll have to start all over again. The worst? Starting over in late June is hardly the worst, Beth. Late blight destroying your tomato and potato crop while infecting your neighbor's gardens? That's bad. A helpful neighbor spraying Roundup on your beds? That's bad. And a secondary gate to hell, as we all know, the primary one is in Italy, that opens up under your habaneros, perhaps attracted by their heat, would qualify as very bad. Your situation is unfortunate at best. Honestly, you don't even make the Legion of Substitute Plagues list. Now let's drop back to praise the memory of the late Mel Bartholomew, creator of the square foot garden method and a dear friend of mine. In brief, Mel's square foot garden method was to take an area, say four by four, four by eight, remove all the existing soil, replace it with what is essentially a container mix of light loose ingredients like peat moss and perlite, plus compost, frame it out as a raised bed and grow the plants inside each bed with delegated areas of one square foot each perhaps four lettuce plants in one of the square foot grids, nine carrots in another, and one or two pepper or eggplants in another one. The grid system appeals greatly to people who have modular minds. It also looks very attractive when done well, but it is not, and this is one of Mel's best friends speaking, the ideal way to grow most plants. But Mel was savvy enough to realize that this new system of gardening would appeal greatly to neat freaks and that the most important part of the plan was the soil improvement, not the grids. Also, Mel was an engineer before he was a gardener and was always fascinated with grid systems. So he wrote what he knew and he loved and he wound up being the author of the best-selling gardening book of all time. Now, the five bag compost thing, this actually came about between a conversation between myself, Mel, and Dr. Frank Gowen, a compost genius affiliated with the University of Maryland. We were trying to answer the question, what if the only compost available is in bags at the local garden center? The answer, which came from either Mel or Dr. G, but not me, was to purchase one of every different type that was available, take them home, open them up, smell them, feel them, look at them. If one seemed infinitely superior, go back and buy more of that. But if they all seem more or less the same, buy one or two bags of each, mix them all together, and use that as the compost portion of the famous Mel's Mix. There never was or will be anything magic about the number five. That was just something we grabbed out of the sky. Now, our listeners' compost and bark mixture. I first noticed this disturbing trend about a decade ago at a garden center in Annapolis. A company was marketing what they promoted as the best of both worlds, compost and wood chips together. 
I finally got them to admit that they had failed to make enough actual compost to meet their pre-order demands and had added wood chip waste to make up the missing yardage. As foolish as wood mulch alone is, it is much worse mixed with compost, where, yes, it will tie up the available soil nitrogen, stunting your plant's growth and making them turn yellow. There's no cure other than to remove all the material, pile it up, and turn it weekly until you can't see any of the wood anymore. But the fact that your peas were the most affected makes me fear that the compost in this mix may also be contaminated with herbicides, as peas and beans are the canaries in the coal mine when it comes to the kind of herbicide poisoning that occurs when grass clippings from treated lawns are involved in the composting process. So yeah, you definitely have uncomposted wood stealing nitrogen from your plants. The material you purchase could also have toxic herbicides in it. The first step is to follow the paper trail. Any large-scale bulk compost offered for sale is supposed to be tested. Ask for, or demand, those test results for your material. At the very least, you should be able to make the garden center reveal their source and follow the breadcrumbs back to them. No matter what, you deserve reparation. Removal of and reimbursement for the junk compost you were sold. Repayment for the peat moss, vermiculite, and or perlite you added. And compensation for the plants you lost. You still have time to replant in a clean soil mix. But always remember, never buy compost that contains visible wood again. Well, that sure was some timely advice about buying compost contaminated with wood waste, now wasn't it? Luckily, you can take your time and read all the details because the Question of the Week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the Question of the Week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden Question of the Week, and you will always find the latest Question of the Week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to chip my compost if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please, oh, please include your location or we will set Rodan upon you. You'll find all of this wonderful contact information, plus answers to your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of recent shows, and links to our internationally renowned podcast. It's all at our website, YouBetYourGarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show and an hour-long public radio show and podcast all produced and delivered to you weekly by Rodale Institute Radio in association with WLVT, PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by and is a trademark of Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created by Harold and Nancy McGrath. All rights reserved. 
Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda McGrath. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Tiara Waring Tavia Minnick is our associate producer of Production Association. Our website wonder is Anastasia Weckerly. Our audio editor is Jazzy Jonas Bowen. Our video editor is Judicious Jake Boyer. Our floor manager, John DeSantis, is diabolically planning how to obtain my 1977 Mattel Flying Monster Rodan with real flapping wings, mint in box. Grading poor at best is our harassed and harried director, Javier Diaz. Don't slab me, is the rallying cry of our cameraman, Jeff Frederick. Regal Ron Ruscha is our director of underwriting. Hey, Ron, I still got a fingernail over here. You haven't sold the naming rights to, okay? Our marketing madman, Jaunty Jim McDonald. Ow! I uh, just took that fingernail. That hurts. Our chief techno officer, Andy Cummins, says, man up. Don't let the other team see you rub it. Zach the Tackwisneski says, what other team? These guys are on our side. Our CEO, Tim Fallon, sagely notes, there are no sides, except at Boston Market. And I'm not your executive producer. I'm fingernail-free Mike McGrath. I'll take a quarter white with cream spinach string beans and a multi-grain roll instead of that cornbread, and I'll see you again next week. This is the ticket. Oh, it is, is it? Beautiful night. I got my best girl with me. Although, you know what could make it even better? Let me guess. Some mint chocolate chip. Bingo. You always get a little sappy when that sweet tooth kicks in. Partners since the beginning. Throughout life, you have many different partners. Shouldn't you have one for the most important aspect of life? Your health. Lehigh Valley Health Network. Your health deserves a partner. Learn more at lvhn.org. Do you love lightning bugs? Or maybe you call them fireflies. I'm Mike McGrath, and on the next thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden, I'll explain how you can make the summer night as dark as Rachel Carson's Silent Spring by spraying an herbicide available just about everywhere. Plus your foreboding phone calls.